Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS. And that link will be in the show notes. Just because they were loved, just because they were touched, just because they were held and given food, like those are the only real things that mattered. And you could start seeing a huge turn in their lives. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life Podcast, where our only priority is providing those aha moments to uplevel your life, health, and happiness. Your host, integrative dietitian nutritionist Krista Bigler, helps health conscious women reduce the stress and confusion around food, fatigue, digestive, and skin issues at lessstressnutrition.com. Now, on to the show. You know, I've really spent some time reflecting on my own phases of burnout this year and past years, and I know I'm not the only one that has gone through or goes through these peaks and valleys. And while sometimes you need lows to appreciate the highs in life, some valleys are pretty difficult for both your mind and your body in a very literal physical way. This year, I'm feeling really pulled to help others work through burnout, nourish their adrenals, mind, body, and spirit, and have some incredible things in store to help you feel refreshed and renewed. I invite you to take my quiz, Are You Approaching Burnout?, to assess your stress resilience and find out more about how to help you overcome it. Go to kristabigler.com forward slash burnout to take that quiz, and it'll also be in the show notes. Today on The Last Stress Life, we have a return guest, Kimberly Beam Holmes, who was once here to tell us about the rules or methods or four pieces of attraction, which was great. And she has a lot of other valuable information around marriage because she has a website, Marriage Helper, where they do different courses and programs to help people like with relationships and education. But I thought an interesting relationship that we haven't had someone come on the podcast to talk about is really adoption. And this is also something that Kimberly has this expert in because it's affected her own life, which tends to make us accidental experts in a lot of places. So Kim has her master's in psychology, and she's the CEO of Marriage Helper, as I mentioned, and creator of Pies University. Her videos, podcasts, and following reach over 250,000 people a month who are making changes to become the best that they are. She's working on her PhD in psychology right now, and she lives in Franklin, Tennessee with her husband, Rob, and two beautiful children from India. And we're going to talk about that process. So welcome back, Kim. Thank you, Krista. I'm super excited to be back with you. 
Yeah. So I'm super excited to just hear about your journey to adoption because I think this is something like I'm sure there probably is someone's one-on-one. Someone has created a website and there's a one-on-one here. But I think this is interesting, unique, and I think people come to adoption for different reasons. So Mm -hmm. I'd love for you to just tell us how this happened, how this was stirred in your heart, how you and Rob came to adoption. So take it away and tell us about why and how this happened. The earliest really important memory that I have in my life was when I was six years old and my parents were taking me on a cruise. So they went on a yearly cruise. It was a whole thing they did. And anyway, I started going when I was six. And so this one year we went to some of the ports were like Belize and the Bahamas. Well, we also went to Honduras. And so when we were at Honduras for that day, we were doing a river safari cruise and we walked the beach a little bit, picked up seashells, and we were heading back to the ship. And as we were heading back, there were three other kids, Honduran children, who one was a little bit younger than me, so maybe four at that time. Another one was about my age, about six. And one was a little older, maybe nine or 10. And they were selling seashells. I mean, I remember I can see them as clear as a picture to this day in my mind, how they looked unkempt, like their clothes were dirty and ratty. They didn't have any shoes on. And they just had all these seashells in their arms and they were selling them. And they went up to my mom and my mom bought three seashells. And if you knew my mother, she is a frugal queen, like yard sales, bargain bins, like all of that stuff is how he grew up. So she does not let go of George Washington's face on a dollar bill until his face is blue. Like she is clinging to it. And she just bought these seashells. And I'm thinking we have like 20 in your purse from where we were just on the beach earlier. Why in the world did you just buy that? And when the kids left, I asked her, why did you just buy those seashells? And both my parents looked at me and they said, Kimberly, these kids don't have a life like you have this might be their only chance to help food on their table for their parents or for their family at the end of today. And so we're buying their seashells because we want to help them. And at that moment, I remembered everything I had at my house, like back at my house, all the toys in my closet, how I had my own bedroom, how I never had to think about where food was going to come from one night. Like that was not my reality. And that moment made such a profound impact on the rest of my life because it opened my eyes to the rest of the world. It opened my eyes to need that was there and profoundly put that impact or that desire of eventually wanting to adopt on my heart. So I didn't know that at six years old, but I knew that I had a passion for wanting to help children starting when I was that young. And so as I got older and went into middle school and high school, I would go on trips, I would do volunteer things like, (laughs) like, I always think it's funny for me to say this, because it sounds like I'm tooting my own horn. Like, I'm like, look at all these things. And it's totally not like I'm sharing the one good thing about me. But there was something in me that loved that. And so when I went to college, I really wanted to go to India. Like specifically, I had a super strong desire for India. And my college had a lot of mission trips and volunteer trips, and but they didn't have any to India. And so I said, well, I'll make one. Like I was a freshman. I'd never been to India. And I decided I was going to figure out how to get there. So 
I looked in the local area. I found ministries or organizations that did things and had partnered with India and started a mission trip. And during my sophomore year of college, I went to India and spent three weeks at an orphanage with a group of people. And when I got back, like it was solidified in my mind that one day... I would be adopting children from India. It was going to happen. It was also the week after I got back from India that I went on the first date with my husband. And, but of course, like we were just dating then. And the, on the first date, I said to him at the cheesecake factory in the middle of Nashville, Tennessee, I said, just so you know, one day I'm adopting from India. So if this is going to continue any further, you just need to be aware that that's what's going to happen. To which he was totally on board with. I mean, it's funny because I don't know if he thought I was serious back then, but it was like it never left our conversations. And so then as we dated and got engaged and got married, like we always knew that that was going to happen one day. So when we first got married, my husband was in the military and was in it for the first seven years of our marriage. And I was terrified to have children because we got married when I was 21 years old. And so I was like, I can't imagine, like I can barely take care of myself. I can't even imagine having kids. So I had a lot of fear around getting pregnant. And I think part of it is because I saw my sister get pregnant really young. And I felt like she and her husband didn't have time to connect at all. And I just wondered how that affected her life. So I had a lot of fear about that. Anyway, that's just what it was. I also had a really terrible experience. So like, this is a total side note. I wish someone had explained to me how hormones, like female hormones, were impacted by birth control way earlier in my life. Because what I ended up doing was getting a Mirena device, like the IUD. Mm -hmm. And since I'd never had kids, they had to dilate my cervix to insert it. And like, I've never had kids at this point. So I don't know how to compare it to childbirth. But that was so painful. I remember I passed out right after they did it. I couldn't stand up even trying to walk to the car an hour later. I was like, my husband had to pretty much carry me out of the doctor. Like the pain was so immense for that. And so there was just a lot of like, I don't like this. Like, I don't like the feeling of what, like, it was very invasive to my body, like that whole thing. And it put a lot of fear in me as well. So I had the Mirena for a while while we were in Korea. I finally got it taken out because I was having like terrible acne and terrible symptoms. So I got it taken out. And then anyway, fast forward, my husband gets out of the military and we're deciding what do we want to do? Like, do we want to start trying to get pregnant? Do we want to start adoption? Like, what do we do at this point? And so we kind of started trying to get pregnant because in my mind, even though both of us knew we wanted to adopt, we also thought we were supposed to like try and get pregnant first. And then adoption always comes like last Mm -hmm. because that's how you typically see it. Like there's either people who can't get pregnant or people have all the natural children they want to have and then they adopt later. So we were like, how are we supposed to do this? So we tried to get pregnant. I couldn't get pregnant. We kind of started going to a fertility doctor. And when they said that, like how much the treatments were, both of us just looked at each other and said, this just doesn't seem right. Like I have friends who did the IVF, like they did all of the, and that's what their heart desired. And I support that a hundred percent. But for us, we were just like, this doesn't seem right. Like it doesn't seem like we want to spend this kind of money and it's not what our hearts are desiring right now. And so we were like, can people adopt first? Like, 
can we even do that? So we started looking into the adoption process. We knew we wanted to adopt from India. We had no idea how to adopt from India. We didn't know anyone who had ever adopted from India. And a couple of weeks after we'd said, we're going to start looking into the adoption process, we met a couple who was finishing their adoption from India. So we asked them all about it. And they gave us their contact information of the people that they were working with. And that is what started us in actually getting into the adoption process. And we ended up finding an agency and talking to them. And when we were talking to the social worker there, we said, you know, we really think that we want to adopt an older child, like an older girl, because I kept having dreams about like a four-year-old girl. And I remember that social worker said, you don't want to adopt an older child. There's going to be problems. He or she is never going to attach to you. Like, that's not what you want. You want to get them as young as possible. So you like put down that you want less than a year old because that's going to give you the best opportunity for your children to attach or your child to attach. And we were like, well, okay. So Rob and I went home and talked about it and like, she's the expert, right? Like she knows what she's talking about, but it didn't, it still didn't feel right to us. And then over the next couple of weeks as we were still kind of talking to her and still kind of talking about, you know, just the adoption in general. Then I started having dreams that there were two children. My husband and I started talking about there being two children. And then multiple people in my life were like, have you thought about what if you end up getting two children? Like all of this unrelated to each other. And we were like, I think we're called to adopt two children. So then we went back to this adoption agency and that social worker and said, um, okay, so we, we really want siblings. <laughs> And they said, we can't even take you as a client if you want siblings, because it's so rare and it's so unlikely to happen. Like, we're not even willing to take that on. So then we had to find an adoption agency that was willing to take that on. And we did. So we did finally find an amazing agency that said, if you feel like siblings are what is on your heart and what is meant for you, then we believe it too. And we will go with you on this journey as long as it takes for you. And so we started that process and like the home studies and all that stuff. So when you're adopting, you get to a point where you, at least with India and every country is different that you're adopting from, including the United States. So you get to a point where you put on this sheet of paper, it's a very strange experience. You get a sheet of paper that says what you're willing to take and what you're not willing to take. And it's heartbreaking. So it's heartbreaking because you're like, I'll take them. Like, like I just want to love these children. And then there's this logical part of you and the adoption agency has really helped us through this of saying, you can't say yes to something. Like you need to be really sure that if you got a referral of a child who had major heart disease? Like, do you have the capability to take care of that? Because that child needs to be put in the best matched home for them to get the medical care and attentiveness to them that they need. And so we kind of went through this list saying like, yes, we can handle this, we can accept this, or maybe, or this is not a good, like this kind of medical condition would not be a good fit for us at this time. And we put yes to more things than not. And then at the end of it, you know, it says, what ages are you willing to take? And so we said zero to five and we wanted siblings and that's all we specified. Then the waiting process kind of begins. So after everything gets approved and, and you tell them what you're looking for, what you're waiting for, what you're willing to take on in your home, it gets put into the system. And then someone starts looking into that system every day to see what comes up, like which children could be matches for you. And it took us, which sounds like a very short amount of time 
compared to how long it did take a lot of people who we knew that were adopting from India at the same time. But from the time that we finished all that to the time we got matched with our children was four months. And I will say it was the most grueling four months of my life because every day I was thinking about and dreaming about and praying for these children that I had no idea what their faces looked like. But I loved them. I yearned for them. Like almost every night we would lay down in bed and I would just turn to my husband, Rob and cry and say, where are they? Where are they? Because you didn't even know how to prepare because we didn't know what genders they were going to be. We didn't know what ages they were going to be. So we couldn't go like buy things for them as much as I wanted to. We didn't know what language they would speak. Like we didn't know anything about them. And when we finally got our referral, we get the call from our adoption agency and she said, I think I have a match for you. And so then she tells us everything about them medically at first without showing us their picture. And she tells us there's a three and a half year old girl and a one and a half year old boy. So my husband and I went back and forth about this so much. I was like, what if we get two girls? And he's like, "Ugh, what if we get two boys? Because he wanted boys and I wanted girls. (laughs) And I was like, no, we can't get two boys. We have to. And so we were like, I hope we get one of each. But we couldn't dictate this. Like we had no control over it. But in our heart of hearts we really believed that there was an older girl and a younger boy. And so when they called and said, there's a three and a half year old girl and a one and a half year old boy and they're siblings and they have like, she wears glasses and that's considered a special need in India. And the son, like he had failure to thrive. So he had been in the hospital a ton in the first year of his life and just like gastrointestinal issues. And he was on antibiotics a lot for just different like, digestive issues and things that he was having and he was marked as failure to thrive. And so both of them were marked as developmentally delayed, like significantly developmentally delayed. So our daughter at that time was three and a half and they said she could speak 10 words. Our son was a year and a half. He could not speak. He did not have affect. So he wouldn't like return smiles or anything and he could not walk. And so My husband and I took all that information, like they sent us the email, we saw their pictures, we saw their medical information, we looked at it for a couple of days, we had some medical adoption centers, look over the referral and the adoption doctors that we had look over the referral. She said to us, Kimberly, we never see referrals this amazing. Like there was a lot of information. We had a lot of medical history on them. And she said, like, we have no reason to believe that there would be anything that are red signs, like diseases they may have that you wouldn't know about until they get here or anything like that. And so after talking about it, praying about it, we accepted the referral. And I said earlier that the waiting to be matched was the worst four months of my life. But after you know what their faces look like, and you know where they are, and you know the situation that they're in, those were the worst months of my life. And so it took six months after we knew who they were for the rest of the process to happen, which in the grand scheme of things is super short. Like adoptions can take two to three or four years. And ours ended up from start to finish was 13 months. But in that last six months, my daughter had a birthday. She turned four. We had Christmas here. My son had a birthday. He turned two. And I felt like we were missing every important part of their lives. And it killed me. So they were in Mumbai and I pulled up like the Mumbai weather app on my phone. I added it to my things that I could see. And every day I was looking over to see what the temperature was and everything. And 
Mumbai almost every day, it would say unhealthy air quality. And I just remember thinking like, we have to get our children out of there. Like they can't even breathe healthily. Like this is where they are. They had a monsoon at one point and we were just praying that our kids were okay. So all this stuff happened. And I was so mad about how long it took, like just internally, I was angry, I was frustrated. And so in February of 2019, everything like, because there's just paperwork during those last six months, it's just paperwork, government paperwork in India and in America, it takes for freaking ever, it's ridiculous. And we had to pass court. So we had to pass court in India for the Mumbai and Indian courts to acknowledge that we would be their parents and they would be our full naturalized children. Did you have to go there for that? We did not. Some people do, depending on the state in India that their children are in. Some people have to show up for court. But since Mumbai is more of a progressive city, they have a pretty good court system. And so anyway, after we passed court, we were able to travel and go and meet them and get them. So the first time we ever saw our children was the day we were bringing them home. It's the first time we ever saw them in person. And so we got to the orphanage. And here's the really crazy like juxtaposition of it. So we get to Mumbai a day early. And we spend that day just trying to wrap our minds around the fact that our lives are going to completely change literally overnight. And so we go to bed at nine o'clock thinking we're going to get a great night's sleep. We're going to wake up. We're supposed to be at the orphanage at 10 a.m. the next day. And we're staying at a Four Seasons, a super nice hotel because it was the closest one to the orphanage. The orphanage was literally a block away. That's the closest hotel, which is just the irony of it. So we go to bed at nine o'clock and I always wondered, like, how do people sleep the night before they're about to meet their children for the first time? Even if they're just pregnant and they're going to deliver, like, how do you sleep? And I think I figured the answer is you don't because we didn't. We woke up at midnight, just like ready to go. Jet lag plus you're about to become parents and meet your children for the first time. So from midnight to 10 a.m., we're just like jonesing for the time to pass. So finally, 10 a.m. comes, we get to the orphanage, we go and we meet with the orphanage director for 30 minutes before they bring the children in. And again, like, we have not met our children. And we don't even know if they know that they're leaving today. Because I had had other friends who have adopted from India that I met along this process. And they had told me about their experience when they went to get their kids. Their kids had no idea that they were leaving that day. And it was very difficult process. So you just don't know what to expect. And so we spend 30 minutes with the orphanage directories telling us about them about their schedules about what they eat. And I remember the last question I asked him was, do they know that they're leaving today? And he said, Oh, Kimberly, they don't just know that they're leaving today. They're excited. Because for the past six months, the amount of time that I was throwing a fit about for the past six months, every single week, we have been meeting with them, showing them your pictures, showing them pictures of where they're going, pictures of the plane that they're going to be on. And we've been explaining to them exactly what's about to happen. So they know today that they're about to get a mother and a father, and they're excited to meet you and they have packed their bags and they are ready to go. And then he said, do not cry or you will scare them. (laughs) I was like, you have to be kidding me. Like, how do you think I'm not going to just bawl over this exact moment? But I didn't like so knowing that if they saw me cry, it could scare them held me together. And then they went and they brought them in. And I have a video of this moment. They videoed it, thankfully. 
And you just had a whole place, by the way. I can't believe they did all that. That's amazing. I know. Yes, absolutely amazing. And so they brought our kids in and clearly, like, looking back on it now, if you look at the video, you can see that they're just like, what in the world is going on? <laughs> they're just like walking in. And so, and Boomy, my daughter, goes straight for my husband, Rob. Like, I tried talking to her when she first came in and I was trying to tell her she was beautiful in Marathi, which was the language that they spoke. So I said, Sundar, which is beautiful. And she was just looking at me like, uh-uh. Uh, <laughs> she went straight for up, sat in his lap. Like they had the picture book of our pictures printed out and she had it with her and she sat on his lap and was pointing to us and saying our names. And she had prepared a song for us <sighs> and she performed it. Like all of this stuff happened. Then they hand me my son. So their birth names that their mother gave them is Bumi and Mayank. So in Marathi, Bumi means earth and Mayank means moon. So the birth mom was so intentional about the names that they gave. So they hand me Mayank and I'm holding him and he just has snot like <laughs> everywhere. He's just like snotty and probably because he can't breathe. The air quality is so terrible. And he just like no emotion, like no emotion. And so for 10 minutes, like they watch how they interact with us and they see how we interact with them for like 10 minutes. And then they say, okay, like time for y'all to leave. <laughs> so this is it. Like, okay, we'll go. So they order a taxi to take us back to our hotel at the Four Seasons. The kids get in the car. Like you can definitely tell they're timid. They're apprehensive. Like they don't know what's going on, although they've been told what's going on. And so the first thing that both of them do when we get into that taxi is both of them immediately fall asleep. And it's like a defense mechanism of like, the stress is so high. I don't know what's happening. Like, I'm just shutting down. And so we get to the hotel. We go up to the hotel room. The staff at the hotel, they knew what was happening. And so by the time we came in, they had had all these toys put in the room and food, like all this stuff for kids just set up so beautifully. Same. Yeah, it was amazing. And so the kids go in and they are like, what is all of this? And they had these package of, they're these Indian cookies called Parlay G. And it's just sugar, like it's just little like, you know, wafer cookies. These children, they went through two huge sleeves of them within five minutes. They were just like eating everything they could. We gave them a bath. I don't know the last time they had had a bath. The water was just like black. And then Rob and I were like, what do we do now? Like, what? So what do we do now? We can't speak their language. Like we're parents for the first time. Now we have a four and a two-year-old. What are we supposed to do? So we took a nap. Like everyone got in the bed and we took a nap. And then when we woke up, which I didn't sleep, side note, the whole two weeks we were in India, I did not sleep more than three hours any night, any oh. night. It was it's like, how do you sleep? Oh, <laughs> yeah. How do you even sleep? And so from that point forward, like we had to keep doing some stuff in India, like paperwork and stuff. We got on a plane with them the next day. We had to go to Delhi for things, but we just spent a lot of time like learning them and interacting with them when we were in India and just like feeding them. They were so hungry. They were eating so much food. I was eating. Everyone was eating so much. <laughs> we were very hungry. And so even though they're biological brother and sister, they were not together in the orphanage. Mm. They were in two separate rooms. And she knew that he was her brother, but he had no idea who she was. And at least for the first seven days, he was just no affect on his face. Like 
We remember when he started smiling. It was about a week into it when we were playing with that, like they were playing in bed. Boomy would reach over to him and like tug his ear to just annoy him. And he would kind of look at her and do it back. And then they would start laughing at each other. And this was the first time we'd ever seen him laugh. Like, why do you think that? I mean, you know, probably like, why is that? Yeah. So one of the things they told us at the orphanage was that they did not hold them. And they said the reason they didn't hold them was because they didn't want them to attach to the caregivers at the orphanage. And it was a great orphanage. They really were like, there's been some horror stories I've heard about orphanages. This one was a good one, but they didn't hold him. And so think about it. He was born, his mother surrendered him at birth. So he never had her. And then he was immediately put into a hospital and given like treatment for stuff. And then at five months, he was back in the hospital and he just didn't get, because when you look at attachment and attachment theory, the way that children learn that they are safe and that they are loved and that they are heard and seen is through connection. So through eye contact, through physical touch, through their needs being met. And I believe his needs were being met. So I believe he was given food and, you know, medical care, but he wasn't looked at. Like he wasn't the apple of someone's eye. He didn't have that. And so even like the first three months after we brought them home, both of them had two very different attachment styles. So Boomy had an attachment style of, I will do anything to make you happy. Like, I'll perform, I'll help you, like, I will do things so that you'll love me. That was kind of how she, like, she was very obedient. She was very astute to what people might need. And she just wanted to like laugh and make you laugh. Like that was how she was. He was the polar opposite. He was the like, I don't trust you. And I don't trust you to care for me. Mm-hmm. So we had to prove it to him. It took three months before he would look me in the eye. And the only way I could get him to look me in the eye was by holding food in front of my face. So I remember just like taking Cheerios and holding it in front of my eye until he would look at me just like a quick look. And when he would look, I would smile and then I would give him the the Cheerio. And then it took probably another month or two after that before he could mimic my facial expressions. So these are things that babies do like when they're, you know, a month to three months old, like they start learning how to do that. And he did not do that. Here he was a little over two years old and he just is starting to like smile if I were to smile at him or if I'm like, if I open my mouth really big, then he would start opening, like replicating, just mimicking what I was doing, which was amazing because I knew that when he did that, it was showing that he was learning to attach to me. He was learning to trust me. I also remember when we first got home. So we live in Tennessee. It's pretty hilly here. Mumbai is very flat. And so by the time we had gotten him at the orphanage, he had learned how to walk, but he could not walk on any surface that was uneven. So grass, like hilly grass, or the sidewalk in front of our house is on like a little bit of an incline, a tiny bit. He would have to crawl up that. So he would get down on his hands and knees and crawl because he didn't know how to walk like if things were unsteady. And if you looked at them now, so like just thinking about where they were when we brought them home and how they were and how they said that Boomy couldn't speak much, like all of these things. And even just six months into them being home, just because they were loved, just because they were touched, just because they were held and given food, like those are the only real things that mattered. And you could start seeing a huge 
turn in their lives, especially for him, because he was so closed off and angry that at six months, everyone said, this is the happiest child we have ever seen in our lives. He was running around laughing, like still to this day, he will laugh at anything. He's just so happy. And they've still had delays along the way. Like he's had a speech delay. He wasn't speaking at all at two years old. And he didn't even really say his first words. I think he said he loved the word shoe for a while. And then it was dog. But it really wasn't until like two and a half, two years and nine months that he started speaking. And now he's about to turn four. He'll be four next month. But he's just like fluent in English, speaking everything in the world. Right. And we're like, why did we want him to speak? Speaking all the time. And Boomi is like, she didn't know any English. She's only been here a little, be two years in February and she's reading. She's fluent and like in her little preschool or kindergarten that she's in, she's right in line with the other children. And she had a four year delay. And so it just, I love adoption. I love because it's my story is not uncommon. Every person I have spoken with and known that has adopted, it has been something exactly the same where it's like once the kids were brought home they flourished and like i've even known people where they adopted children with medical conditions like holes in their heart or they were deaf and they come home and once they're tested here in america it's like no they're perfectly fine and i believe every time that a family opens their home and opens their heart and says we want to adopt i believe they're going to get the right child i believe that it's going to be Not always an easy fit, but a great fit for the family and that amazing things are going to come of it. I've seen it so many times and I've definitely seen it with my family. I'm so glad we're having this conversation. I've just been like entranced the whole time in such a good way. So thank you for sharing this story. I mean, it's amazing that it started when you were six. (laughs) We have so much in common. I did some research in Honduras and the outlying communities and we helped the kids. And so anyway, I was, you were giving me flashback and when you were talking about that, lots of fun things to poke on. I have a few questions about one, and this is just my ignorance and I don't know. So like, did you know about their birth mother? And did she decide, did she have a lot of other children? Did she decide at the time that when your son was born, it was too much? Like, did you know about how they ended up in the orphanage? And then the other question I have is, you were specific about wanting children under five. And it's interesting, I feel like there are some changes that happen around age five, and you can speak to it better. So like, do you think that when you get a child under age five, that the attachment is a little bit natural and easier versus getting a child over age five? I'll speak to that one first. I do think, yes. So yes, I do think that. And I don't disagree with what that initial social worker said when she said the younger you get them, the better attachment can be. I mean, I think that's right. But I don't think that that should dissuade someone from adopting a four, five, six, seven, eight-year-old. It's just gonna, you have to be more intentional about the attachment. So that five, six age range, they're still younger to where they can be put into some different environments and make that change quicker. And there's more time to build trust with them. And I think they're a little more amenable to it. Whereas if you're getting into that more adolescent stage, then they're going to have more memories of hurt or feeling rejected or being alone. And that is what makes attachment harder. It's that what are the stories that the children are bringing with them into the family 
And how can you help them rewrite those stories? And that's really what it is. And there's some situations where it's much harder than others. Like I have a friend that adopted from Haiti. And by the time they brought her child home, I mean, she was like eight or nine years old. And she had memories of being abused by her parents, of not being fed. And so clearly, she's not going to enter into this new adoptive home with positive feelings of what a family is, because she hasn't had that before. You're going to have to really work at going overboard at showing that child they're safe, they're fed, they're heard, they're seen, and not forcing it on them either, because that could cause them to push back on it even more. But yeah, like it, it just takes more intentionality. So that's the answer to that question. What was the other question you asked? I asked about if you knew their birth mother at all. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yes, we know a lot about the birth mother, especially medically because she surrendered Mayank from birth. So all of those hospital records were there. So we know that she has other children but I have no clue where they are. And we know that before she got pregnant with my aunt, that she lived in a home with Boomi for battered and trafficked women. So there's some assumptions there as to what their life was like and to how she maybe got pregnant a second time or, you know, multiple times. So I just wish I knew what Boomi's first two and a half years of life were like when she was with her mom and they were in this place, like, What did she see? How did she eat? Like, what was her daily life like? Of course, she has no recollection. But she even now, if I ask her about India or the orphanage, the first memory that she has is the day we came to get her. And that's not always true. Like, you know, I have another friend that adopted siblings and the older sibling for them, it's a boy. And he remembers everything about the orphanage and everything about his mom, like his birth mom. And he tells her stories about what their life was like before being adopted. But for Boomi, it's like, she has no idea. And I'll show her pictures and she's just like, I don't know. I have no clue what this place is. I have a couple more questions. So you know about attachment. And for me hearing you talk about it, I learned more about it from you talking about it. So I feel like you you have education and history that helps maybe here. So how do you recommend someone else prepare if they're also feeling similarly? Like I would like to adopt an older child. What, I mean, how do they prepare? Because there's got to be a lot to understanding what attachment is like, et cetera, to help you understand, be empathetic, et cetera. So how would you recommend someone prepare? And then what do you expect for your kids in the future? Like, do you have any expectations around, I don't know, needing therapy for any reason at all? Like, do you just feel like, nope, everything is behind? Like, I know you don't can't really predict it, but like, is there even the adoption agency prepare you for, hey, this could happen? Mm-hmm. Yes. So to answer your first question, there is an amazing book called The Connected Child by Dr. Karen Purvis that is typically recommended to anyone who's going to start an adoption journey, no matter what kind of adoption journey it is, because it completely really explains the importance of attachment, how attachment is different for children who are coming from different backgrounds and traumas that they've had in their life. And so it really kind of puts it in a different perspective, but it's such a great book. So I highly recommend that. And in that is where I really learned. So I knew about attachment style from like my psychology background and all of that stuff, but it was more of a technical understanding of it. Whereas you're not going to get a child to attach to you through technicalities. And in that book is where I really learned 
you have to be intentional. So even talking about, this was one of the examples they gave for if, if you're trying to attach with an older child is you really want to focus on touch. Like touch is one of the fastest ways to attach to someone and have someone attached to you, especially the kind, caring touch, like loving and accepted touch. So it very well could be like the first time a person were to touch their adopted child, their child might like pull back from it. Well, you don't just want to keep trying to touch them. Like you have to get it to where by the time your skin hits theirs, there's a calmness to it. So some of the ways you can do it is by brushing their hair. And that way they're not even looking at you because like touch plus eye contact is a more intimate level of attachment. So even if you can just touch them when they're not looking at you, like that's step one, helping them put lotion on, like doing things that they kind of need done, helping them get dressed, feeding them. Feeding them is another huge one because they need to know that they're safe and that they have what they need. Like all their physiological needs are met. So food, shelter, all of those things are ways that you can get to them because you're doing everything you can to underline the message, I'm here for you, period. And you have to actually be there for them in order to do that. So you're attuned to their need. You're giving them what they need. And you're basically building up trust to ask for permission, even though you're not verbally asking for it, but you're asking for permission to be able to touch them, to be able to care for them, for them to trust you. Like you're showing them that you're earning that trust from them. That's what attachment is. So the connected child is a great book. As for my kids. Yeah. When we went to get them two years ago, like I wrote a letter to both of them the hour before we left for the orphanage and just put all my thoughts and like desires for them and fears about whether or not they were going to like me or love me on paper. And I'm sure one day I'll give those to them. I was expecting that we might need family therapy earlier, like bringing them home because you just never know. You never know what kind of trauma they might've experienced or how they might react. Like they could have both been very violently angry and that's normal. And so when that happens, or if that happens, the answer is not, oh my goodness, like we've got to discipline this or, oh my goodness, we have to, like we made a mistake. I don't believe those are the answers. The answer is this child doesn't feel safe. How can we help them feel safe? And so therapy is helpful for that. So do I believe in the future for my children and every case is different and every child is different. I mean, every situation is different. So for us, I wonder about the day that they will say, where's my mom? Or tell me about my birth mother. We tell them about her now as appropriate. Like, you know, you have two moms, you have your birth mom. And now you have us because we came to get you and you're part of our family and we chose you and we love you. And so we, I mean, clearly we can't hide the fact they're adopted. They have (laughs) different skin than us. But that's even another thing of, we have to be very mindful with our kids of like, telling them that their skin is beautiful. And Boomy, my daughter who's older, who's six, I mean, just last week, I was like, I love your skin. I wish my skin was like yours. It's so beautiful. It's so gorgeous. It's so dark. Like, I love it. And she looked at it and she was like, my skin's not beautiful. I was like, yes, it is. It absolutely. And so there's things like that that come up where I know she feels different because I don't look like her. Rob doesn't look like her. The kids that she goes to school with doesn't look like her. And so then we have to ask ourselves, like, what's the message that she's telling herself? Like, what's the story she's telling herself about her? 
when she doesn't see other people who look like her. So that's something that we try to be really mindful of too. And like the shows that she watches or the toys that she has, how do we make sure that they look like her? Um, and not all of them, but we definitely want her to feel like she's not different or bad, like a bad different. We want her to feel like she's a beautiful different, like she's gorgeous different and she's strong different, right? Like, so those are things that I wonder in the future how that's going to play out. Which, you know, some of those challenges that you're facing would be challenges that someone who doesn't feel like they have community and appearance mm. would face regardless of adoption or not adoption. So those are those same emotions. I just think about my mm-hmm. friend who tells me about her, you know, growing up with an Indian mom who made her use bleaching cream and, and whatnot. And so, you know, it was just part of that culture a little bit, like the lighter, the Indian skin. I mean, right. it was new to me until she told me about it quite recently. So anyway. I love this conversation so much. Thank you so much for sharing this story. Our goal here is really to provide these aha moments to be inspired, to encourage, to share. And so I think that it did all those things. I loved it. So I appreciate your story so much. And thanks for sharing it with us. Mm, I appreciate you having me share it. Thank you, Krista. One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stressed Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stressed Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock. 